Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Did you know that God tells us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem in Psalm 122, verses 6 to 9? Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my brothers and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your prosperity. God promised blessing on those who bless Israel and curses on those who curse Israel. That's Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. And since Jerusalem is depicted as the center of Jewish life, it follows that those who pray for her peace and security will be granted peace themselves. Rick, on today's program, we're going to continue to focus on what's taking place in Israel, what's happening in the European Union with geopolitics and Ken Timmerman, focus on Israel with David Dolan, and Israel Madad is coming today to give us his take on what's taking place. Mike Gender will close out the program as we focus on events that are taking place in our world today and why it's important that God's word is the center of our life as believers. Well, Rick, let's get started with our first, Ken Timmerman. Well, that's right, Jimmy. I have Ken Timmerman with us. Ken, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me on, Rick. It's a blessing. Well, Ken, as we did last week, we're going to mostly look at the Hamas attack on Israel and how it has changed the dynamics geopolitically around the world. We're going to start in Russia. We look at President Biden's speech where he compared Vladimir Putin to Hamas, and that did not make Vladimir Putin happy at all. Could you tell us a little bit about that situation? It did not make Putin happy, and frankly, it was a pretty lame comparison. He said that both Russia and Hamas, they might be different threats, but they share this in common, quote, they both want to annihilate a neighboring democracy. You know, I think people will take um, issue that uh, Ukraine is a, a democracy. They've canceled elections. Uh, Zelensky has been arresting priests from the Russian Orthodox Church on the pretext that they are agents of the Russian government. Um, and, you know, he has shut down all opposition voices to his rule in Ukraine. So there's not much of Ukrainian democracy that is remaining. Uh, but nevertheless, it still it was a comparison to try to convince Congress as much as anyone else to pass this enormous $100 billion aid package. Biden is trying to come on the backs of the tremendous sympathy in Congress and amongst Americans for Israel uh, in response to this just horrific, horrific attack by Hamas. Uh, Americans want to help Israel every way that they can. Congress is less certain that we want to give more money to Ukraine until they have accountability. So Biden is trying to put these two things together, uh, wrap them into a $100 billion package, and hope that uh, a caretaker, Speaker of the House, will be able to ram them through. Rick, I want to say one more thing about Biden's speech, which I think is, is really I found shocking. Biden said that he, he was going to call the parents of a six-year-old Palestinian boy who was killed in Chicago last week because, you know, that was a terrible thing to happen. And of course, it was a terrible thing to happen. But how many families of American hostages has he called? How many families of American Jews who were murdered ruthlessly uh, by Hamas on October 7th has he called? Not a single one. 
So I think that this is something he needs to really put these things in perspective. And then he goes to Israel and he tells Bibi Netanyahu not to act out of rage. I, I think there's something a bit unhinged about Biden's response. And it has left a lot of us who, who listen to that speech uh, a bit troubled. We'll continue to keep an eye on that situation. But as we've talked about with Vladimir Putin and Russia, really they are trying to form a new world order. We are looking at China. We are looking at Iran, looking at Putin, trying to maybe even take advantage of the chaos in the Middle East to grow his influence. Can you talk about this new world order of China, Russia, and Middle Eastern powers, including Iran? Russia and China have been working on establishing a new world order, Rick, and they've been doing this for quite some time. But, you know, uh, they got nowhere when Trump was president. In fact, Trump was quite successful in keeping the two of them apart from collaborating openly. Now you had just this week, Putin makes yet another trip to Beijing uh, on Wednesday, where he was there to commemorate with Xi Jinping the 10th anniversary of the Belt and Road Initiative. They talked quite openly about this new world order. And the UN Secretary General Gutierrez came as well. He was the only significant world leader who showed up other than those members of the Shanghai Initiative. And uh, he went to Beijing to call for a ceasefire in Gaza. That should remind us all of the uselessness of the United Nations. But Gutierrez would like to see the UN as a member of this new world order, a multipolar world where Russia and China have as much suasion as the United States. This is a very dangerous world order, an alternative world order. I think one that most of our listeners would not like very much. Well, Ken, let's continue talking about Iran. And we've documented it on this program quite a bit. President Biden's attempt to restart the nuclear talks with Iran seemed to have given them more of a capability of actually developing a nuclear weapon. This is something in light of their backing of these terroristic attacks in Gaza. This is something that we can't let happen. We can't let Iran get a nuclear bomb, can we? Uh, well, that's a very good question. Uh, Biden has said, and the administration repeats, that it is a priority for the United States that Iran never have a nuclear weapon. But right now, their negotiating strategy has been to say, pretty please, please don't enrich up to 90%. And there has never been, that I've heard at least, an or else. In other words, there has never been a strong stick to go with a carrot of uh, money uh, being unfrozen by the Biden administration. Uh, you know, Iran's foreign reserves, Rick, have gone from uh, something like $18 billion when Trump left office to over $15 billion today because the Biden administration has been allowing them to export oil, much, much more oil than they were before. And you can see that Iran is not deterred by anything. The Biden White House, again, has gone out of its way to essentially give Iran a pass for any responsibility in the Hamas attacks. We know now that those attacks were planned uh, as much as two years in advance. Meanwhile, Iran has been training over 6,000 Hamas fighters inside Iran itself. Just this Friday, Rick, the Houthi rebels in Yemen fired two long-range cruise missiles against Israel. They were intercepted in the Red Sea by the USS Kearney. These were missiles, we're told, that had a 2,000-mile range. They were obviously supplied by Iran, but they were also ordered by Iran. I don't know what the U.S. is waiting for to acknowledge Iran's malign hand in this uh, attack by Hamas, but I can tell you this. The Iranians have 
every interest to declare themselves a nuclear weapons state. In other words, uh, if not to explode a bomb in a test to tell the world that they have nuclear weapons. This president has shown that he will do nothing to prevent that from happening. And I doubt that he will do much if it does actually happen. Well, Ken, we look at the Islamic world and they have been calling for, quote unquote, days of rage. They've been calling for Muslims around the world to take action. One of those calls was heeded by a terrorist in Sweden who killed several people in Sweden, an area that I know that is very close to you. So this situation has got to have Europe on edge, doesn't it? Well, the Europeans are very worried and they have seen attacks uh, recently. And you mentioned the Swedes. There were two Swedish tourists killed by a terrorist in Brussels on Monday night at a uh, football match, a European soccer match. And the Swedes now are very worried that this is going to spill over in Sweden itself. You know, there has been a running battle between Islamists in Sweden and the Swedish population for a number of years, the police does virtually nothing. When Swedish girls are gang raped, the police pretends it does not happen. Uh, when they do eventually, occasionally announce uh, a Swedish female victim, they refuse to say the nationality or the origin of the individual or group of individuals who actually raped her. Uh, so Sweden is in a state of denial. And now they're they're actually talking, the social Democrats are actually talking now about banning free speech, about banning Koran burning or any uh, public um, discussion of Islamism or political Islam. Uh, this is exactly the wrong direction for them to go in, but it's uh, typical Swedish. We get all hand-wringing and tears and no retaliation. Well, Ken, it's certainly going to need strong leadership both here in the United States and around the world to deal with this situation. But, Ken, we just look at this, and it looks like maybe after the fact, after the terrorist attack, President Biden was seemingly very supportive of the Israelis. But I'm not sure that his leadership has been up to par. What kind of leader do we need? Where do we need to look for leadership going forward to help us through this situation in the Middle East? First, Rick, let me just repeat what I said earlier. There are reports coming out of what Biden actually said to Bibi Netanyahu, which are not uh, particularly reassuring. Uh, it, it appeared that he was trying to get uh, Netanyahu to exercise, quote, restraint. He has publicly called on him to open up humanitarian aid to Gaza. And Biden announced $100 million of U.S. aid to civilians in Gaza. Well, we all know where that money is going to go. Hamas is going to take it. It's what they always do. Uh, so I, e even his response, which on the surface appeared to be very positive, I think his, his, his dealings with Bibi Netanyahu were not as positive as people think. Look, we were far safer under President Trump than we have been in the last three years with Joe Biden. Iran was in a box. Their oil exports were down to 400,000 barrels a day. Today, they're now shipping 1.6 million barrels per day to China alone. It's a huge increase in revenues, about uh, 45 to $50 billion a year in fresh money going into their coffers. Uh, we've seen that what that has led to in uh, Gaza. China was not the threat that it is today. They were not saber rattling the way that they are today. All of these threats, and, and there are many more out there, Rick, did not exist under President Trump. It is far better, as Machiavelli told us, to be feared than to be loved. That is not the case today. Ken Timmerman with our geopolitical update here on Prophecy Today. Ken, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Rick. God bless. Great job as always, Ken. 
we got to take a break, and when we come back, our Middle East news update as we continue to look at the war in Israel. Right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. The Iranian government was quick to accuse Israel of a hospital bombing in Gaza on Wednesday. Various agencies say somewhere between 400 and 1,000 people were killed. The Israeli government reports the hospital bombing was from a misfired rocket in Gaza. American President Joe Biden says U.S. intelligence also shows Israel did not fire the rocket. Still, Iran's foreign minister tweeted that time is over for Israel. Lana Silk with Transform Iran says with Iran, anti-Israeli sentiment is also taken out on Iranian Christians. The government considers Christians as people who side with what they call Zionist Israel. And the Christians pay a high price for how the government feels about Israel. Pray for God's protection over innocent Palestinians, Israelis, and the church in Iran. And innovative Bible translations are reaching an overlooked global population. John with Wycliffe USA says a growing observation of oral communication in recent years gave rise to oral Bible translation. Today, the technique is bearing spiritual fruit worldwide in every location. God is using people who would at one point be counted out because they don't know how to read and write. I get to see these people come to know Jesus and come to understand him clearly in a way that is most natural for them. They don't have to learn to read and write in order to interact with the God who knows them. Pray for unity among translation teams and pray for the clear, accurate, and natural translation of Scripture. Thanks for listening to Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. We're listener-supported by people just like you. So by giving to Mission Network News, you enable us to keep the stories of God's kingdom coming. And together, the Great Commission happens. Look for links at missionnews.org. That's missionnews.org. I'm Ruth Kramer. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. This is our Middle East news update. Dave Dolan has been with us all week long, ever since the Hamas attack on Israel, that brutal, horrific attack. Dave Dolan has been coming back to keep us updated. He's here with us again today for the Middle East news update. Dave, thank you for taking the time to be with us. I'm glad to be with you, Rick, although I wish it was better, better news. I do too, Dave. Well, let's continue. We look at the situation taking place since that attack. Things have been happening at a rapid pace. What is the update? What is the status right now? Well, of course, it was exactly two weeks ago this morning, Saturday morning in Israel, when the attack took place, uh, the largest massacre in history of any people, let alone Jews, since the slaughter in Kiev in the Ukraine in 1944 by the Nazis. 1,400 people killed. More bodies were discovered this week, charred women and children and others. Meanwhile, we had the uh, release of two American hostages being held in the Gaza Strip on Friday evening, a mother and daughter from the Chicago area, Jewish, who uh, the mother was ill, supposed said to be ill, and Hamas said it released them for that reason. And so they're expected to head back to the United States and uh, we had more bombing runs uh, from uh, Gaza, sort of a quiet day, but in the morning there were a series of attacks. And then after dark, which is pretty typical now every day, they launched more barrages at Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, and other areas, and of course the Iron Dome system 
went into action. But the main news on the war front, Rick, was uh, up in the north. The situation all week has become more and more worrisome, isn't the word. More and more dire is probably the word from Monday until today. We've seen the city of Kiryat Shmona, where I lived for two years. I had an apartment facing the hill behind it, which is where rockets are now coming from over the border from Lebanon on the city. It was ordered completely evacuated. Now, that hasn't happened ever in my uh, 45 years reporting on Israel. Uh, that has never happened. So that's 23,000 people. Now, many of them had left on their own already. Certainly the men, many of them are in the army. Anybody of of age is in the army, but and a lot of the women too. But that happened. There were more attacks on Matula. There were more attacks on other communities. And right above Kiryat Shmona is a Moshav, a farming community. I've been at it. You may have. They have a guest house. Beautiful place called Margaliot. And there was an IDF patrol passing it. And uh, suddenly shots rang out from across the border fence. So the IDF, of course, returned fire, but the shooter or shooters, they think it was just one, though, uh, escaped. So they immediately called in IDF surveillance drones, which uh, quickly spotted the man and uh, shot, you know, they're armed. So they uh, shot him and killed him on the scene. But uh, they said dozens of Hezbollah rockets, Rick, were fired into the northern Galilee region and some in Western Galilee as well, near the ocean, but mostly in the Northern Galilee area where Israel has several major army bases, as you know, and one was right next to a kibbutz along the border, Kibbutz Agoshrin, that I lived on in 1981, uh, under sustained Palestinian rocket fire, by the way, that was the PLO in those days in South Lebanon. And they uh, were aiming mostly at those bases, and they hit some of them. There were some Israeli casualties. We don't have exact details of that. They were also firing all day anti-tank missiles at the bases and at other targets and mortar shells. Well, one of the mortar shells landed right next to Kibbutz Dan, again, right uh, near where I lived, uh, close to where I lived. And it was uh, close also to Highway 99. Now, that's the northernmost highway that crosses Israel from west to east, from Kiryat Shmona, it begins. I'm sure you've been on it. I have many times. I live there every day. I was on it. And it ends up on the Golan Heights. So they closed the road entirely. And they're continuing to move people south, uh, basically, Rick. And the evacuees from Kiryat Shmona are being housed in guest houses in Tiberias and other areas further south that, of course, are empty because who's going to go on vacation right now? Uh, in the north of Israel with the war raging. So that war is heating up, and of course it came soon after the Ayatollah Khamenei, the supreme leader of Iran, as they call him, gave a live speech on Iranian TV in which he basically declared war on Israel on Thursday. He said, uh, we, will, but we will resist to the end, the resistance will be victorious, and uh, anyone that stands against us will will be dealt with. So basically declaring war on America, too, and Israel's other allies. A very fiery speech. And a commentator uh, on the program right after uh, on state TV, so he had the approval of the government, uh, laid out what they're planning, a multi-front attack involving uh, volunteers from Iraq, from Iran, from Lebanon, from Syria, from 
Jordan, from the Gulf states, from wherever they want to come, from around the world, actually, uh, along Israel's northern border, and they'll um, attack on the ground while missiles are being blitzed into Israel and the Iron Dome is being uh, overwhelmed by by the sheer volume of uh, so that explains why Israel's frankly beginning the evacuation of the northern Galilee region, which is very, very vulnerable to such a thing, could easily be cut off. You know the geography well. And of course, uh, Syria is a hostile force on the other side of the Golan Heights. So it's a, it's a worrisome situation. And Nasrallah of Hezbollah also made some comments approving of the Ayatollah speech and saying that Hezbollah has never been stronger. He said, we're a thousand times stronger than we were during the last full war in 2006. And he went on to threaten America and you know, the usual things that he says. So it's a very, very difficult situation. And the war cabinet in, in Jerusalem is meeting and Tel Aviv. They're often meeting there, too, at Army headquarters uh, every day. And uh, we still are hearing that the ground invasion is imminent. Defense Minister Gallant said Thursday that Soon the soldiers would be inside of Gaza, not looking at it from outside, but you'll be seeing it from inside, he said. So that's still on the way. And, of course, negotiations continue. Qatar involved very much over the release of further hostages. Uh, Israel saying at least set free the women and children, all of them, and do it now. So we'll see what happens with that. No shortage of concern for those hostages, and we'll continue to keep you abreast of that situation. But, David, as you look at what's taking place, you see the activity in the north, and Israel is very concerned about opening up a second front. When the call comes to fully engage from the north, is that going to come from the local area there, or is that something that Iran is going to dictate? Is that something that they're going to give the go-ahead on? Well, Rick, there already is active Hezbollah participation in this war. I mean, again, there were dozens of rockets fired on Friday at Israeli military positions and civilian centers. They've evacuated a city on and on. The war is on in the north. But the full missile blitz and all of that, well, the commentator laid it out. First, we'll go in on the land, and then we'll cover the forces with a massive missile blitz. But yes... They want to re be reacting to the, quote, slaughter, the, quote, genocide, as Erdogan of Turkey called it today. Israel's committing genocide, or on Friday he said that, while there were demonstrations all over his country against Israel. You know, so they, they, are, they are in it, but they're waiting, indeed, until the pictures of dead and dying Palestinians in Gaza increase, and et cetera, and, and the condemnations of Israel increase, and the UN's condemning, and on and on, and then they'll unleash it. And also, if there is going to be a stream of volunteer fighters, and they did this in 48, and they did this in 67, there were volunteers from Pakistan and uh, all over the Muslim world, that, Indonesia and others that came to fight alongside them. So that will take some time to get people to the northern border area, take a few days at least. But certainly in the next week or two, it looks like we'll see the north fully explode. And, uh, and of course, that uh, it, it is true that Hezbollah is a lot stronger than Hamas, a lot. And, they, uh, and Iran has direct access to them in that crescent from Iran through Shiite portions of Iraq, through Syria, 
that they almost control now and Lebanon that they do control. So it seems to be coming, it seems to have started, and uh, when it reaches that full level is anybody's guess, but it seems to be uh, coming soon. Well, David, thank you so much for the update. As you keep us updated on what is going on there in Israel and what we can expect in the near future, David, I'm going to ask you to come back if it's all right. You wrote a book in the past, and it's called Holy War for the Promised Land, Israel at the Crossroads. And in that book, you talk about Hamas. This is before they were really what they are today. In fact, you almost predicted that this would be the situation we come to. I'd like to talk to you a little bit more about this book and a little bit more about the development of Hamas. If you could, could you come back in the next segment and talk to us about your book and about Hamas? That is okay. I'll do it. God bless. Rick, we got to take a break. And when we come back, we will talk with David about his book, uh, Holy War in the Promised Land. I remember when Dad interviewed Dave when he wrote this book. So it's interesting that we are now revisiting that. Israel Madad will also be on the program. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung in the Legacy Series later on, talking about the city of Rome. Mike Gendron at the end of the program as we take a look at the book. Right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Just how close are we to the rapture of the church? Do events taking place in the Middle East and around the world have prophetic significance? In his latest book, Sound the Trumpets, Jimmy DeYoung examines these questions and explains just how near the rapture of the church could possibly be. By comparing four trends from prophetic scripture to current events taking place in the world today, Jimmy shows that the stage is set. Every actor is in place, and the curtain is about to go up on the end-time scenario set forth in the scriptures. Sound the Trumpets is a must-read for every serious student of Bible prophecy. To order your copy of Jimmy DeYoung's new book, Sound the Trumpets, for only $15, call us today at 8-PROPHECY-8. That's 877-674-3298. Or visit us on the World Wide Web at prophecytoday.com. Call today and make sure to get your copy of Sound the Trumpets. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. You know, I've had a great opportunity to present the gospel and to help people to understand what is happening in these days. You know, part of our responsibility and your responsibility when you hear these things is to edify and educate the body of Christ. Remember those four trends of Bible prophecy that we keep our eyes on, the four major trends of Bible prophecy, the return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel, the anticipation for peace, and the alignment of nations that will come against Israel in the end times, and the arrangements for the temple to be built in the city of Jerusalem. Praying for the peace of Jerusalem is most appropriate for a city whose name literally means peaceful and which is the residence of the God of peace. The phrase peace be upon Israel is also found at the end of Psalm 125 verse 5 and 128 verse 6, indicating that it was a common farewell blessing. Further, Jerusalem will be the scene of Christ's return. Acts 1.11, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4. And at that time, he will establish permanent peace within its walls. All Christians should be eagerly awaiting his return and praying for the time 
when the Prince of Peace will reign in the city of Jerusalem. Well, we asked Dave to come back. And David, you have a great book uh, that you wrote about this uh, back in the early, uh, late 90s, actually, early 2000s. So, uh, Rick, let's bring Dave back in here. That's right, Jimmy. Dave Dolan joins us in the second half hour. He was with us in the first half hour for our Middle East news update. Now he is here with us. We're going to be talking about his book, Holy War for the Promised Land, Israel at the Crossroads, a book Dave put out in 2003. And we take a look at this book and it explains the origins of Hamas and kind of shows us what could happen and unfortunately did happen on October 7th. Dave, thank you for coming back and talking to us about this. Actually, Rick, the first edition of my book was published by Thomas Nelson in 1991, and in that I predicted that Hamas, which was then a fairly new group, would go on to become a major player in the Middle East conflict and in the Arab-Israeli dispute in particular. And sadly, we now see that that is the case. It was founded, the group, in 1987 at the beginning of the first Palestinian uprising in December in the Gaza Strip, in Gaza City. It's an offshoot of the Egyptian-based Muslim Brotherhood movement, which was formed in the 1920s. Hamas in Arabic, it is an acronym for Islamic Resistance Movement. That's their formal full name. And But the word in Arabic alone, Hamas, means zeal, whereas in Hebrew, it means violence. It says Ish Hamas in the book of Isaiah, a man of violence. So the opposite in the two languages that are related otherwise. It published its founding charters in the early days of the uh, first uprising in August of 1988. And it made clear, and I just reread it from my book a few minutes ago before you called, uh, four pages I devote to it, makes clear that the only goal of Hamas and the ultimate goal is Israel's total destruction. There can be no peace talks with uh, the Jewish state. You can't give them back any land. All of the land must return to Islamic control. It's Islamic trust land. Everyone must prepare for the final jihad to liberate uh, the land from the Jewish people who are said to rule the world, control the world governments, control the world media, uh, uh, all the banks, and all these sorts of uh, Nazi-style um, propositions. And of course, in the charter, they call Israel the Nazis and the things they're doing uh, to their people. They came out of nowhere, basically, Rick, and within months, and I watched it, I began working for CVS in April of 1988, so reporting every day on uh, the uprising. They became more and more and more and more popular as the days went on, to the point that by late that year, they were issuing their own directives. They were calling for demonstrations in this town or that town or this to happen and that to happen. Well, that was supposed to be the role of the uh, of a council that was headed by Yasser Arafat, the PLO, and other Palestinian groups that Hamas refused to take part in. They said, no, we'll do this ourselves. Our goal is a little bit bigger than yours. And that was very popular. And the Jerusalem Post took a poll in uh, 1989 showing that they had overtaken the PLO in popularity on the Palestinian street. Meanwhile, Arafat, sensing this, knowing this was true, started to clash his forces with Hamas in several towns uh, in Bethlehem. Christians started to be killed by some Hamas uh, members fighting there, deliberately killed because they were Christians. And uh, it got worse and worse. And in 1991, 
Iran was behind the calling of an Islamic summit in which uh, the call to jihad was formally made. Yasser Arafat attended, and he formally endorsed that call. Of course, two years later, he signed the Oslo Peace Accords, which were strongly denounced by Hamas, and uh, any peace talks with Israel still verboten, forbidden today. The book is called Holy War for the Promised Land, Israel at the Crossroads. David, we're going to have this book on our website. If you're interested, go to our website at prophecytoday.com. David, as we continue to look at this situation right now, how is this going to end up? What is going to take place here? Hamas is not calling for a two-state solution. They are essentially calling for the elimination of the state of Israel. There is not really any negotiation there, even though there is this thought and maybe the European Union, maybe in the United States, maybe in the United Nations that, uh, listen, if we have a two-state solution, if we have a Palestinian state to go along with a, a Jewish nation of Israel, that you can have these two nations together. But that is not what Hamas is saying. Hamas is calling for the elimination of the Jewish state. Is that correct? Am I looking at this correctly? Oh, that's abundantly clear. Again, their founding charter spells that out quite quite visually, actually. It talks about Mohammed beheading Jews when he attacked Jewish communities in Arabia soon after he uh, set up his, his religion, if you will. It's uh, regional, and that's the problem. If Hamas, I've said this before on your program, mostly with your late father, but if Hamas existed alone as the only... Islamic jihad-focused group amongst uh, in the Middle East, and they were this uh, strange little group that didn't really have much influence or power. And that's the way the Israelis, by the way, thought of them initially, Rick. They even, in the first years, first two years of the first uprising, Israel was aiding Hamas. They were sending education money to their educational institutions, their schools, as Sheikh Yassin, who founded it, had a network of schools. Israeli leaders at the time saw the PLO as their main enemy. They thought radical Islam was just a minor little force. But the point of my book was that, hey, there's a country now called Iran. It's one of the biggest countries in the Middle East, as big as the largest Arab country, which is Egypt, of course. It's not Arab, but it's Islamic, Shiite Islamic, more extreme to begin with. And it is a state, and it's formed a militia up in Lebanon. That had already occurred a few years, 1982. I was in Lebanon when they formed it. They formed it. You know, it's not just associated with them. They set it up, the Revolutionary Guards. They didn't set up Hamas, but everything Hamas stands for is exactly what Iran is pushing, the total destruction of Israel. And when the Oslo Accords, Rick, were signed, you may remember this, the opinion surveys amongst the Arabs, Israeli Arabs and the Palestinians in Judea and Samaria and Gaza, showed that there was support, quite a bit of support for the peace accord. I think it was a majority. It wasn't a huge majority, but it was it was there. Um, well, uh, Rabin was assassinated, the second uprising happened, et cetera, et cetera, and uh, Hamas has been, since they won the parliamentary election, at least in 2006, uh, the last elections held, they have been uh, a very powerful and increasing powerful force here, precisely because they have the backing of a huge segment of the Lebanese population willing to fight for them, and they 
huge part of the Iranian and Iraqi uh, Shiite populations. Again, Khamenei in his speech called for jihad warriors to gather at Israel's borders, basically, from all around the region. So that's the reason Hamas thinks, and the Palestinians now think, that they might actually destroy Israel. With the help of these outside forces, they might actually do it. And with Russia uh, supporting, in a way, indirectly, Turkey now strongly supporting Hamas too, Yemen supporting them, they've got allies out there and they know it. And they're not going to stop. Jihad is their goal, and they're going to continue warring, they think, until they win. You and I know that the scriptures uh, say the outcome will be a little different than that. That's certainly true, and that's the hope that we have, as Scripture says, and it gives us the final play of what is going to happen in the Middle East. But until then, this is fitting right into the prophetic scenario that's going to take place in the end times. Well, David, we look at this situation, and you've given us some background. You've given us some history of Hamas and how they have grown to power. They've grown to power with the backing of Iran. This is basically helping you to understand the dynamics of what's taking place in the Middle East. We appreciate what you're doing. Again, the book, Holy War for the Promised Land, Israel at the Crossroads. We'll have it on our website. If you go to prophecytoday.com, go to our bookstore, you will see it there. David, as always, thank you so much for the insight that you provide in helping us to understand what is taking place in the Middle East, and how it relates to Bible prophecy. We appreciate what you do, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Well, I wish it was a more pleasant topic, but I'm glad to be able to talk with you, Rick, and to your listeners, and God bless, and let's keep lifting the whole region, the Israelis and the whole region up in prayer. Absolutely. Thank you so much, David. Rick, I have been eagerly awaiting our conversation with Israel Madad coming from Judea and Samaria, the city of Shiloh. Well, that's right, Jimmy. We have Yisrael Madad. That's his name. We call him Winky. That's his nickname. He's a good friend of ours. He's the former mayor of Shiloh. He's a historian, a politician, somebody who's in the know. He lives in Judea and Samaria, an area that we call Judea and Samaria because that's what the Bible calls it, but the rest of the world may call the West Bank. It's a hot spot right now. Winky, thank you for taking the effort, making the time to join us today. It's a pleasure, an honor, and a privilege Well, Winky, as we get started here, the first thing I want to ask, and I believe I would be remiss if I didn't ask this, so we know what's going on in the south near Gaza. We know what's going on or could potentially be going on in the north. And then, of course, you have the area, like I just mentioned, Judea and Samaria, the West Bank area. And this is an area where there are a lot of Palestinians. This is where you live. The first thing I want to ask you, Winky, is how are you doing? What is it like living there? Are you, your family, your community safe? Thank you for inquiring, of course. We're safe. We have uh, beefed up security uh, because we do not want any of our local Arab residents to think that whatever that was done down south surrounding Gaza could, should, or even be thought of attempted here. And of course, a lot of people are missing because they're in the army reserves. And I've been in Jerusalem this week, actually two days. The bus schedule is not very normal, so it's not that easy, but it, it's, it's, it's not impossible. I don't drive, so I have to use the buses and they're safer in my opinion anyway. And I can tell you that Jerusalem looks 
almost as quote unquote bad as on Yom Kippur. Very few people in the streets, very few vehicular traffic. Buses are going, uh, but everything is completely slowed down, to be uh, honest. Winky, I think that this situation has a slightly different feel. We've talked to you over many years, over many different types of conflicts, many different type of flare-ups in between Israel and Gaza, or even in the north. But this one is a little bit different. We look at the involvement of Iran. We look at the Arab world, the Muslim world in general, and how there are people protesting in the streets. This has a feel like this is an existential threat to Israel. Is that how you're viewing the situation there? What is the mood like among Israelis? Well, let me disagree. It's not as existential. And we've been talking about Iran and Hezbollah over many years. So that's there. And I don't think anybody is concerned about the security situation in the way, if I understood you, uh, the question was posed. What's really weighing down on our heads and our hearts is the fact that basically over the past 20 to 30 years, Israel internally has been divided on its vision of what peace is. It has been battered in the United Nations, in the world media, and we've followed this over the years in a sort of hypocritical, biased, and now even a vicious element that, in other words, we've lost, you know, 1,500 or so people, both civilians and the soldiers who rushed to save them, and people are still not believing us. And of course, we get the news here and we see what's going on on college campuses uh, with that uh, hospital strike earlier this week. And, you know, no one wants to believe you. And, you know, you say, how much more blood can be shed by us for you to for us to gain some sort of sympathy that the Hamas story uh, and the rest of the Palestinian story is not what you're hearing, but is almost completely the other way around. And that's what's, I think, downing us, if I can use that verb, the sense that we're not being believed. Well, I can certainly understand that sentiment, Winky, and that's what we're doing in this program. We are here to inform our listeners. Let's continue on, and we continue to talk about this situation. We, For months leading up to this, we talked about the Israeli political situation. There are some that believe that maybe that political situation and the way it potentially showed weakness in Israel maybe might have led to this attack. But if we put all that behind us now and we look at it going forward, the political situation, they now have a new unity government. Can you talk to us about the political situation in Israel? How is it helping Israel during this time? Well, it's uh, the unity government, I call it unity government minus. For our listeners, that's because uh, there are two uh, opposition figures that have not joined the government. One, I don't know why. That's Avigdor Lieberman of the uh, of the Israel Home Party. He basically represents, shall we say, the Russian bloc of votes. And Yair Lapid, who's been losing a lot of support in favor of Benny Gantz, the other opposition leader who did join with Netanyahu. That's so. That's explaining unity minus. But there are still very small elements that cannot release themselves from the fervor 
of anti-Netanyahu propaganda that's going on, and it's it's not healthy, but it seems to be going very well because no one's complaining within the unity government about what each other is doing. So I, I take that as a good measurement stick that things are moving on, if only because the two main people involved, uh, which is Benny Gantz and Gadi Eisenkort, were two former chiefs and staffs. So they're therefore as not politicians, but basically as military people to oversee and, and to make sure that the best military plans are being uh, laid out for the army to, to fill. Winky, there may be time in the future to worry about this. Uh, many people are blaming Benjamin Netanyahu for letting down the guard of the country. I'm not sure if that's how you view the situation, and I'm sure I'm going to ask you your opinion here. But do you think there's some blame to lay at Netanyahu's feet? And do you think he is the right man to lead Israel at this time? Netanyahu, for me, still is the right person. I do not know all the facts about the last couple of months leading up to this. It is obvious to anybody, and that includes you and me, right, that if the military intelligence does not tell you, hey, for the past two weeks we've been seeing uh, these guys running around on motorcycles, practicing all sorts of things, maybe we should be doing something, he's not responsible for that. He's responsible for the fact like, what happened 50 years ago in the Yom Kippur War, when Golda Meir was given all the information and was basically told that an attack was going to take place the next day, and she still said, no, we're not calling up the reserves. That's a major responsibility, or should I say irresponsibility. That is not the case now with Mr. Netanyahu. You want to blame him for not having more uh, security elements in place for the civilians, you know, these uh, things on the side of the road or whatever, or you want to blame the previous government for taking away the weapons from the uh, intervention squads uh, that were the heroes of the day down on the kibbutzim, that's one thing. But to say that he's responsible for the Hamas surprise attack, I think is going a little bit further than uh, necessary. Well, good. Let's move on then to the American response. And I know President Biden uh, recently visited Israel. And for whatever you want to say about President Biden and how he's been, it feels to me like he has been extremely supportive of Israel. The same cannot necessarily be said of all of our congressmen. I'd like to bring up a particular story. You sent it to Jimmy and he was shared it with me as well. It's with AOC, the uh, congressman from New York, or the congresswoman, I should say, from New York. And she is appointing blame for this attack. And part of the blame she is putting on is she is saying Christian fundamentalism is a key driver in the conflict between Israel and Palestine. And she basically, her thought here is the fact that there are evangelicals, and uh, this would probably be this program as well, who have championed the cause of Israel, the Jewish presence on the Temple Mount, the moving the embassy, the United States embassy to Jerusalem, which happens to be the capital of Israel. And that was why the decision was made by Donald Trump with the support of, quote unquote, evangelicals to move that embassy to Jerusalem. And she is saying that these are the kind of things that basically, I guess, riled up the Palestinians that uh, motivated Hamas to create these attacks. So she is putting blame on Christian American 
fundamentalist evangelicals. Can you talk a little bit about that? I know you sent us this article, so I'm sure you have some thoughts on it. What do you think about that? Well, first of all, it'll be a little bit humorous. I'd like to share the blame. I mean, Jews being guilty all the time is, a, you know, is an old story. Well, let's have some evangelicals <laughs> here in the pot and let's see how things go along. Okay, but more seriously, this is indicative of the way these people think. I mean, she's uh, one of the founding members of the so-called squad, right? Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar, Ilhan Omar and uh, one or two other guys uh, out there. And these people are Marxists, in, in not in the political sense, but in the philosophical, if I can put it that way, sense. And everything has to fit into their paradigms and their frameworks, and nothing is allowed to go outside them. And so if evangelical Christians are doing the right thing, like helping Israel, that must be wrong because it's hurting the Palestinians. Now, she doesn't ask if the Palestinians are wrong, right? Maybe they're the ones to blame for some of the situation. It's got to be everybody else except. And that's the new theory going around, as far as I've been able to tell. You know, the, you have the privileged and you have the underprivileged. And it doesn't make a difference if you're actually underprivileged, if you are brown or in the south of the hemisphere or all sorts of other identities and identifications and, 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 and whatever. That's the way things work. So you could see if you watch the clip, she's not thinking. She's spouting. She's just cliche dropping what someone briefed her uh, from this Marxist type of uh, woke progressive ideology and how dangerous this is because it doesn't take into consideration rational thought. And that's the problem. And it's also going on in the campuses as well. Well, Winky, we only have a few minutes here, so I'd like to get uh, one more question out of you. We we have you on the program, Winky, because you're experienced, because you have wisdom, because you provide insight for us. And But I know you're not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. But as we look at this situation, there is so much uncertainty. And we are certainly praying for peace in Israel. We are praying for the peace of Jerusalem. We are praying for the situation there. And we are praying for Israel. But as we look at this situation, where do you see things headed? Where do you see, is this going to be? a Middle East-wide regional conflict? Is it going to stay local? I know, again, I'm not asking you for guarantees, but if you could, from your wisdom, from your insight, where do you see us headed? Oh, well, look, we've had not exactly missile fire, but uh, anti-tank fire from uh, Lebanon over the past few days. So you could say, well, they're preparing for a major conflict. Or I could say, perhaps they're only trying to say, hey, we're in the game, but, you know, we're on the low bid. You know, mm -hmm. we're not, we're just here to make a little bit of noise. We don't want to have the Hamasniks or even the Iranians say, we didn't do anything to help out anybody. Uh, that would be the positive way to look at it. I don't know. I don't know if they're serious or not. Israel has made threats basically to take apart Lebanon and leave it devastated if they want to get into any sort of real conflict, because that's just the prologue or anything else that goes on uh, from the north. As for the south, uh, it might take a day, two, three days. I presume we're going in very soon because we have like tens and tens of thousands of troops 
uh, surrounding Gaza, and everybody's convinced now that we have to take apart Hamas if Gaza is going to stay where it is or drop off into the sea, and not literally, but in some sort of imagery, as we could say here, because we can't go on like this. We've On this program, I've covered, I don't know, about five or six battles, operations, or even slight wars, most of them in the South, and we always were left with the inability, basically because of either the United States or the United Nations, to finish things off. And so after two or three years, we're at it again. I hope the people, including from President Biden on down, realize that this time, let's give it the try of Israel going all the way, and then we see what happens. So I hope that the war is short, battles are not as fierce as we suspect, that the casualties are as low as possible, and also that the people who were abducted to Gaza, including 30 children and, and elderly and other people who are still alive, will be saved. We have to pray uh, for, that, for their safety as well. Well, that certainly is our prayer as well. And Winky, I appreciate so much. We are praying for your country. We are praying for you individually. We are praying for the Jewish people because we believe that's what God commanded us to do. We thank you for coming on this program and giving us your uh, valuable opinion, your insights, your wisdom. Winky, stay safe, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you very much. Goodbye to you and our listeners. You know, Rick, the one thing that I hear in Winky's voice is the resolve of the Jewish people to survive even in these odds of what's happening in the state of Israel today. Well, we got to take a break, and when we come back, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung in the Legacy Series, a new series on the biblical cities of the Bible, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we're examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Jesus also said that we should be peacemakers, which would include praying for peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That's Matthew chapter 5. And we are commanded to do our best to live at peace with others. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men, Romans twelve eighteen. So Rick, God wants us to seek peace among all people, and that would include praying for the peace in Jerusalem, especially because it is a special place in his heart. It certainly is, Jimmy. And if there's one thing that we have heard from our broadcast partners today, it's the situation going on, taking place in Israel right now, taking place in the entire Middle East, certainly needs our prayers. We need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We need to pray for peace in this entire situation, Jimmy. Jimmy, I'm so glad to be able to bring this program out to people and so we can give you a true picture of what is going on and so we can look at current events in the light of God's prophetic word. If you go to prophecytoday.com, you can find a way to donate to us. You could also go to our bookstore. We have many prophetic study aids, materials that you can use to determine where we are in God's prophetic timeline, and we hope that you can use those as an encouragement in your walk. Yes, excellent idea, Rick. Prophecytoday.com. Well, the Legacy Series today, we're going to start a new series. There are several key locations that have leading roles throughout history, and will continue to do so in the future according to God's prophetic word. Rome, the city of the revived Roman Empire, 
Damascus, a city that will be destroyed. Babylon, economic capital of the world. Jerusalem, a city of controversy. And then, of course, the new Jerusalem, our eternal home. Today, we're going to look at the city of Rome. To do that, we'll start in Revelation chapter 17. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 17, where Dr. Jimmy DeYoung will begin his talk on the false church, which will be headquartered in the city of Rome. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. Do me a favor and take your Bibles and let's go to the book of Revelation chapter 17. The first city I want to talk about, and it is the next city in God's plan for what's going to happen in the future, the city of Rome. Now let me just touch base, and by faith I want you to take what I'm teaching you at this point. I'm going to come back and build my case on this statement in just a moment. But look at verse 9 of chapter 17. It talks about, And here is the mind which hath wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth. Now I'm going to explain who the woman is here. That word is used six times in chapter 17 in alignment with another name for this particular woman. But I want you to notice the seven mountains upon which the woman sitteth. This is referring to a city. When John wrote the book in 95 AD, the major seven mountain city in the world was Rome, Italy. And we're going to trace back through the scriptures and come to a conclusion that that is what this is referring to. Look also at verse 18. And the woman, again, there's that phrase, the woman, and I'll get more in depth in a moment. The woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. And I'm going to tell you that Rome is referred to as the great city and today even reigning over the kings of this earth. We're going to get back and study through chapter 17. The approach I'm going to take as we study these five major cities of Bible prophecy would be to look at the past. Once we've done that, we'll look at the prophecy pertaining to them. And then I want to conclude each of my studies with looking at the potential for these prophecies in God's word to be fulfilled. Notice the direction I take. I do not go to an event, a current event or a location to prove Bible prophecy. First, I lay out the prophetic scenario found in God's word. And then we use that as a spotlight looking at what may well be the fulfillment of the potential of what city we're looking at. So we have established that I'm going to be looking at Rome. It is the city that ruleth over the kings of the earth. Let me think with you just a moment, if you will, about the past of Rome, Italy. Rome itself was established in 753 B.C., about 2,800 years ago. There were two brothers, Romulus and Remos, who were twin brothers living in this location, a small village in the boot of what we see in the Mediterranean, which is, of course, modern-day Italy. These two brothers got into a fight one day, and this is tradition. This is what, when you go to Wikipedia, for example, it'll tell you. This is the tradition. The two brothers got in a fight over naming this little village where they were. Romulus defeated his brother, killed his brother, and then he named this little village Rome. And it started out as a monarchy. He was proclaimed by himself, self-proclaimed, the king of this little village called Rome. It developed into a complete kingdom around the region. 
and basically around the region of what we know as modern-day Italy. That continued on until Rome and what they had in the monarchy became a republic. And the republic is representative type of government. This continues on down through the 700 years, almost to the time of the birth of Jesus Christ. And in 31 BC, the Roman Empire in 31 BC was established with the Caesars. And the word Caesar means emperor. It's not the name, first name of the guys that were rulers in the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was in place at the time of the birth of Jesus Christ. Now this is unique in itself, and there is a passage of Scripture that really relates to that. Keep your finger here in chapter 17 of Revelation, but go back to Galatians just a moment. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, and I want to show you a very interesting verse and think with you about the birth of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 4. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. In the fullness of time. And what that's referring to is at the time of the birth of Jesus Christ, it has application, I believe, for the second coming of Christ, and I'll apply it a moment later from now. But this is talking about in the fullness of time. Think about, if you will, with me, the Roman Empire and how God brought this last of the Gentile world powers before we come to the time of the revival of the Roman Empire into place at the time of the birth of Jesus Christ. The Roman Empire controlled the Mediterranean area, all the nations around the Mediterranean coastline, and then some beyond as well, most of all of Europe, even all the way to Great Britain was controlled by the Roman Empire. And it was at this time that there was stability in the known world, which is what needed to be in place at the time of the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, the Roman government controlled what was going on in the world. The Roman military enforced the government's dictates to the world. Uh, there was an infrastructure in the Roman Empire, a road system. You've heard about the Roman roads. Lived in Jerusalem for about 22 years now. And often we've gone out and done some sightseeing, Judy and I on our own without a tour group, but we've seen remnants of the Roman road uh, that have uh, been in place since they were established there over 2,000 years ago. And so we had an infrastructure, we had a stability in the world at the time of the birth of Jesus Christ. We had a common language, Koine Greek was the common language. This would be for the purpose of allowing those who were going to take forth the gospel to be able to communicate with everybody. And we had a common currency, the denarius, which was currency, the people taking forth the gospel would be able to purchase their needs as they traveled along that Roman road to get the word out. So in the fullness of time with the Roman Empire in place, with its stability, with its infrastructure, with its common currency, with its common language, and with the synagogue system so that the teachers of the gospel could go forth and assemble a group of people together, the Lord Jesus Christ was born. That is unique in the fact of the Roman Empire. Now in 70 AD, the Roman Empire rose up against the Jewish people and would disperse them to the four corners of the earth. Let me back up to 64. Nero was the Roman emperor and he started 
persecution of Christians. It became very rampant across the Roman Empire that Christians were being persecuted from Nero's command as the emperor of the Roman Empire. In 64 AD, he allowed the city of Rome to burn down. The Roman Empire was in dire straits. We didn't know if they were going to continue on or not. In 69 AD, uh, there were four Roman emperors in one year. And then they selected a man named Vespasian to be the Roman emperor. He was in charge of the Middle East under the leadership of the Roman Empire. They brought him from the Middle East into Rome to rebuild the Roman Empire. As he stood on the shores of the Mediterranean in Caesarea, he turned to his son, General Titus, and he told him to return to Jerusalem and to devastate the temple, destroy and burn down the city of Jerusalem, disperse the Jews to the four corners of the earth, and bring all the treasures of the temple into Rome. And that's exactly what General Titus did. In 70 AD, when he came in and destroyed the temple with his troops coming off of the Mount of Olives, crossing the Kidron Valley up on the Temple Mount, they removed every stone atop of every other stone. And by the way, that was fulfilling Bible prophecy because Jesus almost 40 years to the day earlier had said there wouldn't be a stone on the temple at some time, not one stone upon another stone. So God was allowing human government to fulfill Bible prophecy. But also in 70 AD, the Jews were scattered to the four corners of the earth, and that was a fulfillment of Deuteronomy 28, when God told Moses, if your people, the Jewish people, don't obey me, I'll scatter them to the four corners of the earth. They'll feel like they're a proverb. They'll be in danger of their own life. I was in Rome, as I said two months ago, I stood at the Arch of Titus. That's where General Titus returned to Rome. His father, Vespasian, the Roman emperor, erected this arch. On the arch, there's a relief on the arch, and it's a picture of the Roman soldiers carrying the menorah, the seven-branch candelabra, carrying the table of showbread out of the holy place, and carrying the trumpets. And that's evidence that General Titus had destroyed the temple. By the way, the reason he wanted him to destroy the temple was to bring the riches, the treasure, out of the temple. There have been estimates that the treasures in the temple at the time it was destroyed in 70 A.D. was about 50 tons, tons, 50 tons of gold and silver in that temple. It gave them enough money. If you've ever been to Rome or if you've ever seen the picture of the Colosseum there, that money was used to build that Colosseum by Vespasian and General Titus. Vespasian ruled as the Roman emperor for about eight years. He died. His son Titus came to power. And then after four years, Titus was, died as well. And his brother came to power, Domitian. If you don't know who Domitian is, he was the Roman emperor at the time the apostle John was sent to the Isle of Patmos because of his teaching of the word of God and also because of his testimony for Jesus Christ. So you can see one family played a key role in fulfilling Bible prophecy as it relates to the prophecies that had been given to Old Testament prophets. And because of the Roman Empire, that did take place. The church was established in Rome. Again, I make the statement it was established by Paul, not by Peter. They were converts of the apostle Paul when he was traveling, not only in Asia Minor, when he came into Europe, when he went to Philippi, having received the call from Macedonia. And when he comes in, he goes to Philippi, he comes down uh, to Corinth, he goes over to Ephesus. Uh, he's establishing the church, but those converts that knew 
Paul and came to Christianity, came to salvation through the ministry of Paul, went back to Rome. It was the major city in the world, the largest city in the world. And there they established the church. And the church for about the first 300 years was really solid in the city of Rome, Italy. It was 303 AD when the church started to dissolve into the apostasy that it has come to today. And that, of course, when the Edict of Milan went out and Constantine, who was the Roman emperor, said that everybody in the world was Christian, all they had to do was be baptized and they were gonna be Christian. And that started to dilute everything that Christianity stood for. That is somewhat of the uh, history of the Roman Empire from 753 AD uh, when the little village of Rome was established as a monarchy, developed through a republic, and then came in to be the Roman Empire. And that gives us a base now to understand more information that we'll receive from the Word of God about the city of Rome. And that's where we'll start next week with the city of Rome, Dr. Jimmy D. Young and the Legacy Series. We'll be right back with a look at the book with Mike Gendron right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. The Iranian government was quick to accuse Israel of a hospital bombing in Gaza Wednesday, killing several hundred people. The Israeli government and U.S. intelligence both say the hospital bombing was from a misfired rocket in Gaza. Then, Iran's foreign minister tweeted, time is over for Israel. Transform Iran's Lana Silk says anti-Israeli sentiment in Iran is also taken out on Iranian Christians, whom Iran sees as touting Western influence along with Israel. Pray for God's protection over the church in Iran. And innovative Bible translations are reaching an overlooked global population. John with Wycliffe USA says a growing observation of oral communication in recent years gave rise to oral Bible translation. Today, the technique is bearing spiritual fruit worldwide. In some places, dusty Bibles gain new life when believers learn about orality. Find your place in the story at missionnews.org. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. You know, as we've been thinking about and focusing again now for the third week on what is taking place in Israel, not only in Israel, but the European Union, everybody's involvement in this, the whole world, the eyes of the world are on Jerusalem, the state of Israel, the Jewish people. As it should be. I mean, that's Bible prophecy. We as a ministry focus on the Jewish people. God's not finished with the Jews yet. 
So, Rick, uh, I thought I would bring our, our good friend, Mike Gendron, to the program today because Mike was just on the Mediterranean. Mike, welcome to the program. Oh, it's good to be back with you. Yes, sir. And uh, give us your website again. Proclaimingthegospel.org. Proclaimingthegospel.org. I see on your website that you're going to be in Jacksonville, Florida. Tell us about that real quick. Yes, I'm going to be ministering at Shiloh Metropolitan Baptist Church, whose pastor is H.B. Charles. I will be there Tuesday night and Wednesday night doing two different messages at 7 o'clock. So if you're in the area, you ought to come and take in some great Bible teaching, not only from myself, but also from H.P. Charles. Yes, sir. And we have a great listenership in Jacksonville, Florida, Way Radio. Folks, uh, you need to go see Mike here in person. You can go visit him, go up and tell him that you heard him on the radio program. So, Mike, uh, yes, you were on the Mediterranean. You were preaching a message on Psalm 83, and then you got the news alert that uh, Israel was under attack. So uh, that is so, as we were talking before the, we started the impeccable timing of the Lord to kind of keep you from that situation. And that's, uh, that is something that you have become to rely upon, haven't you? Oh, definitely. We marvel at God's providence and protection because, uh, if we'd have been in there a couple of days earlier, 4,200 people would have disembarked on the boat and been there touring Israel. And so we were just very blessed to have been protected, again, by God's providence. We don't know why the the ship was redirected away two days before, but we're so thankful for that. Mm, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Well, the reason I wanted to have you on the program today is I wanted to talk about the Reformation. We are celebrating the 506th anniversary, I guess, of the Reformation this month, the month of October. The Reformation, in the title of an email that you sent out that people can get at your website, the Reformation must not be reversed. Why do you say that? I say that because there are many evangelical leaders that are trying to reverse the Reformation by signing unity accords with the Roman Catholic religion. These unity accords state that they have a common bond in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the furthest thing from the truth, because the gospel of the Roman Catholic Church is under divine condemnation because of uh, what's written in Galatians Mm. chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. They have added requirements to it. And so for evangelicals to ignore that and also ignore the direct command in Second Corinthians 6, not to be unequally yoked, not to be joining with unbelievers in any spiritual enterprises. These evangelical leaders need to be confronted by the people in the pew and persuade them to remember the Reformation because the gospel's under attack like never before. What hope does the next generation have if we don't contend earnestly for the purity and the exclusivity of the gospel. So why do you think evangelicals are are doing this? Well, I think a lot of it has to do with the sins of the flesh. Uh, Evangelical leaders do not want to be in opposition to anyone. They want to be more (laughs) popular. They want to have a larger following. And so by stripping away the essentials of the gospel, they can gain a larger following and be loved by more people and be more influential in the community. I mean, I don't understand, because 
these evangelical leaders know the Bible, they know the scriptures that I just shared, but yet they're still saying that we share a common gospel with Roman Catholics. So help us, what did the Reformation accomplish? Well, it accomplished um, a lot of things, but I think primarily it put the Bible back in the hands of the people. Amen. And we know that the truth of God's Word will set people free from religious deception. And in fact, the Catholic Church was so alarmed at how many people were reading the Bible and being set free that they placed the Bible on the list of forbidden <laughs> books. In fact, if you were a Catholic during that time, you would not have your sins forgiven unless you returned the Bible to the Church. Another accomplishment was the recovery of the important doctrine of justification. The Reformers said that justification is the very hinge upon which the gates open and gates of heaven open and close. And so to reestablish the doctrine of justification by faith alone was a major part of the Reformation because the gospel now could be understood by the people that were being deceived by the Roman Catholic religion. Mike, I want to talk about the five solas. I'm going to ask you to come back, but I do want you to give us a word of encouragement in these days in which we're living. Uh, understanding that there are false religions out there, what can you help us as the body of Christ to understand? Well, keep in mind that religion has always been an enemy of the gospel mm -hmm. of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the best way to turn an enemy into a friend is to faithfully proclaim the glorious gospel of grace to those who are trapped in religious deception. So we need to be faithful to the Great Commission. We need to be obedient. We know the Lord is coming soon. And Jimmy, you know that when the church is removed from this earth, there will be no more gospel mm -hmm. witness. And so we need to reach those that we love now before the rapture occurs. Amen. Amen, Mike. I love it. Hey, give us uh, again the location where you're going to be going to be at Shiloh Metropolitan Baptist Church. It's located on Beaver Street in Jacksonville, Florida. I'll be speaking there Tuesday night at 7 o'clock, and then another campus in Shiloh, Orange Park, and that'll be on Blanching Road in Orange Park, Florida. Proclaimingthegospel.org. Mike Gendron, folks, you need to go. Mike, thanks again for being with us today. Always a joy and a pleasure to be with you, Jimmy. I started out the program today. God tells us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem in Psalm 122. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. Folks, with everything that's happening today, we can't help but say that the rapture that Mike was talking about could happen at any moment. Let's keep looking up until... Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is a listener-supported production of Shofar Communications in Chattanooga, Tennessee.